This is David Suisse. Welcome to my podcast. Today, delighted to have my friend from Jerusalem, Uri Dromi, who was in the Air Force for 25 years. I think I had read once that you were the oldest pilot in, in Israel history. No, no, is that no. true, Uri? No, 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 no. Not the oldest pilot. I, I just flew uh, more years than anybody else in my You have flown squadron. more years than anyone else. Yes. But you are I so wasn't. humble. <laughs> well... So, you know, with your long, long history uh, with the IDF, right now we're all worried about Gaza. And we've been reading that, you know, in the last 24 hours, they, they, three to 400 missiles were sent on Israel, almost a record amount of missiles. What do you make of the latest situation now in Gaza, Uri? Well, there's the short-term and tactical uh, uh, issue, and there's the long-term one. In the short-term, um, we need to put an end to this barrage of, uh, of rockets. And I'm very happy to hear, because I'm also following it from afar, that uh, there is some uh, understanding brokered by the Egyptians that uh, probably will see some kind of a ceasefire, at least temporarily. Do you still have sources in the Air Force? Yes, yes. You still do? Yes. I, I do they you, tell you stuff? They tell me less than I want to hear, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yes, they tell me stuff, and I trust them, and they're better than we were. Uh, so What are you hearing? Uh, the, the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad are trying to uh, overcome our... Uh, technological superiority with the Iron Dome. Oh, yes, I read that this morning. Yes, and this is uh, really a challenge because Iron Dome really was a game changer. Suddenly, the Palestinian, the, the, the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad found that we have a solution to this, like, by the way, the solution that is evolving for the tunnels. So Israel, with its technological capabilities, finds solutions for all this. But now they're trying uh, to um, kind of over-smart us by, by, by flying uh, so many rockets. A whole bunch of them, like more than usual, them, in a smaller and, area. And, and you know, there's the operation of Iron Dome is half automatic, half human. Uh, the commander there on the spot can decide at any moment uh, to divert a missile there or here mm. uh, according to which is uh, the bigger threat. You know, it's like mobili mobilized doing the, the, the new device. Right. It's not an automatic. It's not just automated. It's, you no, need it's human it's, skill. There's a person, many women soldiers, by the way, sitting there and making a on-the-spot decision uh, should they uh, intercept this rocket or that rocket. So the so by firing so many uh, rockets to a small area, the Hamas and Islamic Jihad are trying to buffle the... So this is the very latest security challenge for Israel. Right. Right. This right. is the battle of rockets. But Yes. But, and, and of course, it's a terrible situation for the people living there, and it should, should be stopped. However... I'm happy to hear that there's a sign of uh, ceasefire, or at least uh, lowering the the level of the fire, because, as you mentioned, I flew in the Israeli Air Force, and I have to tell you, David, that one-third of my class 
from uh, Flying Academy are buried in uh, military graveyards. Mm. So I'm not a trigger-happy person because I know what the consequences are. And there are some people who, uh, even cabinet minister who, and, and obviously people who never been to, into uh, harm's way, uh, say, let's go there and uh, smash the Hamas and, and, uh, and, and uh, put them to their knees, etc. It's easier said than done. Well, look, you know, I haven't slept in uh, 24 hours. My son's in the IDF. So you know what I'm talking about. I know, I know so exactly. So everything what I'm... we can do to stop this barrage of rockets, without having to go to send our boys, including your son, into Gaza, uh, I welcome it. And and there's no need to be uh, bragging too much or to or to uh, you know um, be the uh, uh, compete who is the bigger. Uh, uh, you know, Uri, with all the criticism that Bibi's gotten in America from he's so very many cautious. places, he's very cautious. You have to give him that, don't you? I get a real sense that he just does not want to send the boys and the men and well, the women. Well, I to, tell you something. I served lives. under I served under Itzhak Rabin, and he also had uh, his own. Uh, uh, you know, he wouldn't sleep at night if he had to send people. But sometimes, you know, you're commander-in-chief and you need to send the people uh, and the boys or the girls uh, or the women uh, into harm's way. But I, I agree with you. I give BB uh, the, uh, the credit for being very cautious in, uh, in uh, using our military force because, you know, the easiest thing is to, to send... Uh, the military in, but then what? Then, and we've, we we learned it the hard way many times, both in Gaza and in Lebanon. You go in, you don't know how you're going to get out. And, mm-hmm. so, and, and many times you get out not with what you had hoped for. Yeah, you know, this is what I find with war in a way. Uh, during the 20th century, we got used to wars that ended. And the ultimate war that ended was the Second World War. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the Vietnam comes in and we just can't end the war. And then Iraq, we just can't end these wars and, and wrap them up in a neat bow tie with the Marshall Plan and, the re, you know, the revival of Europe and so forth. And I think a similar thing has happened in Israel where we had these wars that ended, you know, in 48 and 56 and then obviously 67 famous war. But in the last 10, 20 years... We haven't had any of those wars that you can end. Right. Even more than 10, 20 years. I think the Lebanon, Lebanon the, first, right. the first Lebanon war was the, was the first war that we learned the hard way that uh, uh, was, war changed its nature. Uh, you were talking about World War II. I mean, there's a famous uh, speech of General Patton to his uh, Third Army just before the attack on Berlin and says, I'm going to go there and <laughs> grab, really grab Hitler and kill him <laughs> yeah, myself. Yeah. You know, these things are, are, are gone because gone are the days that we're fighting army against army. Today we're fighting against elusive enemy, which hides behind the human shield, which hides uh, uh, deep in the ground and, uh, and uses... Uh, 
ability of uh, of of uh, civilians population to right. protect itself so but by the way gaza forget about the war for now there's a ongoing problem with gaza gaza they have two million people who feel they're under siege and they can't go anywhere they don't see a horizon they don't see hope for themselves and their families i'm not trying to subscribe sure. to their narrative yeah. all i'm saying is that if we think this is a problem of gaza or the egyptians or something no it's always becomes our problem mm-hmm. and therefore you see you hear voices among the israeli mm-hmm. military and even the government saying uh rockets aside when things calm down we should do something together to alleviate uh, living conditions in gaza because let people work you know the, the the golden age of the people of gaza was when they could go and work in israel because the majority of these people are not terrorists mm-hmm. they have they've been hijacked by by hamas in 2007 uh some of them supported it because they 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 revolted against the corruption of Fatah but basically there's a big problem there and hopefully if we can use not only the stick but also the carrot i think it would be a wise uh, way of doing things well i think you put your finger on a problem that's endemic to the conflict which is that uh, their biggest enemies are their leaders and you have corrupt leaders who teach hatred of Zionism as a primary value and hatred of Jews. And it's very difficult to get past these leaders to have any kind of humanitarian or any kind of a bottom-up solution that will help the people. It's always been a fundamental obstacle to peace and to reconciliation is how do you get through those corrupt leaders? And I include... Uh, Judea and Samaria. I include the PA in that. I always felt that their biggest enemies are their leaders. Well, so Arafat in action. You know, I was in Cairo when we signed or we re- re- reiterated, we re- uh, confirmed again the peace treaty. With Which year was that? In 1994. Mm-hmm. I was in Cairo in a big conference hall when, when the Arafat and Rabin signed Uh, the agreement about Jericho right and in front of a packed room of all these people and world television right and that was the agreement that allowed him to come back from Tunis correct uh, no he already came oh, but but this was another one dealing so with it Jericho. was a next step next Jericho step, plus. I was standing feet away because I wanted to push my photographer I was the Uh, a government spokesman at the time I want to push my photographer as close as possible so the security guards of the Egyptians made us freeze so I was just I could smell what happened uh, uh, on the podium and he signed first Arafat signed first and then Rabin sits and starts signing and then he froze stopped looked around we didn't know what he wanted so he says to me Bring Yol Zinger, or the legal advisor. Legal advisor comes to the stage, and the two of them start uh, whispering to each other. And we're watching this, not knowing what went wrong. And Arafat standing there like he doesn't know anything. Turned out, he pretended he signed everything, but he skipped two pages. 
Two pages hidden inside. Unbelievable. Because there were several signatures that were required. Yes. And he skipped two pages. Skipped two pages. I think this is a major scoop. And and he pretended he was like you saw his hand moving. And but he didn't, and Rabin caught that. Rabin caught that. And Rabin uh, was uh, red in the face. And then he says something like, I'm leaving. Uh, he was ready to leave, mm-hmm. which, by the way, signaled to the Israelis who, who later watched, who watched everything on television that Rabin is not going to compromise. Get ripped on, on, off on security. Uh, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. So this is why they, they were willing to follow. But after a lot of haggling, and, and, and I saw Mubarak, and by the way, this was Mubarak's birthday. So just think about it. you come to Mubarak's home on his birthday and you embarrass him in front of all the, the whole world. So he says to him, Yakalb, uh, you dog. Uh, he says to Arafat, you dog. Arafat, you dog. You sign, and he signed. But to, it gives you an idea of the lack David, of trust. I have to admit my uh, sins because I was a spokesman of the government then and I had to explain. So I said, look, he was doing it for, Arafat was doing it for his people to show them that he's, he will fight for them and then he would, but it uh, broke something in me and, and I understood that we are dealing with a crook mm. who turned a blind eye on, on terror. Mm. Abu Mazen is different. Abu Mazen is against terror. Mm-hmm. And uh, the kind of cooperation we have now with the security services of the Palestinians is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it guarantees a relative calm on, in the West Bank. But he is not the kind of person, and, uh, and, uh, and even Arafat wasn't, the kind of the Nelson Mandela who would turn to his own people and say, this is what we can get. Mm-hmm. Let's now start a nation building. Let's start building infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They had a period under Salam Fayyad. Fayyad, I remember. Uh, who was a serious businessman who said, guys, until we have the political solution, let's... Let's build something. Uh, from bottom up, not mm-hmm. wait for top-down uh, solutions to right. come from Washington or elsewhere. We were all dreamers. I was so... I remember those days of Oslo, Uri. We were dreaming and celebrating and hoping that this would be a new era. And reality sort of ambushed so many of us. But David, and, I learned from my mother, you know, uh, if you see a problem, turn it into an opportunity. That's what I love about your writing, Roy. You're a little to the left of me, and the reason I've loved, loved your writing is because you never lose your eye on the ball, on what needs to happen. You've always stayed focused, no matter how bad things get. And I think we just need these kind of voices because I've become so cynical on the... Palestinian leadership, and even on the good stuff that you just mentioned, right? The fact that there's security cooperation and that Abbas is anti-terror. I think he's anti-terror because he knows it's really, really bad for them and for their Asbara to, to have the terrorism. It's and more I than Asbara. I think it's uh, David. I think he, he appreciates the Asbara. He goes to the UN. He goes to The Hague. You, he threatened us to... Mm-hmm. Outflank us from. Uh, and all if he supported terror, he knows he would lose a lot of that credibility. It's not only credibility. He knows that it really hurts the Palestinian Correct. cause. Correct. Because every time they mess with us, they lose something. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but uh, there's always the, this 
noises about the new Trump deal of the century. Oh, my God. We've been writing about it. Everybody <laughs> in America, we're all waiting for this well, uh, what Trump, mystery deal. Look, uh, one thing you, you can't take from, from Trump, and I am, you might guess I'm critical of many things of him, but he kind of signaled to the Palestinians through Jason Greenblatt and uh, Kushner and uh, himself and uh, Ambassador Friedman that they can't uh, take us hostage anymore. Mm. You know, you want to be, you want to reject everything, you want to say no to everything, you're going to lose all the time. So mm. stop. Mm-hmm. So th- that is refreshing. The question is what comes Next. What, what's the what's the substance? Mm-hmm. You know, he gave us the the embassy in Jerusalem, which is nice, but you know, if you read his own book, I mean, Trump's it's not his book; it's right. co-written with somebody. Uh, out of the deal, you need to give the two sides. The, you, you can't have one side win all and one side lose. Right. So I, the I have a, with him. I have a theory, Uri, that uh, the hatred is so deep. The contempt for Zionism, for Jews, is so, so deep that any deal that is good for Israel, they can't sign. So a Palestinian state is very, very good for Israel. It will save the future of Zionism as a Jewish exactly. democracy. Exactly. You know? And it's too good for us. So they can't sign anything that's good. This Which is, is my why. Which is why, David, uh, we shouldn't let ourselves be dependent on what the Palestinians do. Amen. And uh, if we believe that uh, we need, we must keep Israel as a democracy and a Jewish state, we need to uh, make sure that we don't rule uh, two million or four million Palestinians. And do stuff that's unilateral? I would would look at the proposal made by uh, General uh, Yadlin, uh, mm-hmm. head of INSS, uh, who says, yes, we should, uh, because of what you said, I mean, there's no partner probably, or right now there's no partner. If it's good for us, they won't sign. Uh, so let's do what's best for us unilaterally, uh, establish our uh, borders, and we'll say, look, this is what we're going to do. If you like it, come to the table. You'll you'll find us more generous and more forthcoming than ever. If you don't, you want to kick butt. Uh, we'll we'll. You know, I met somebody a couple weeks ago. Apparently, he was very close to Sharon. He was in the inner circle, and I asked him, "Tell me the truth. Uh, had he not died, would he have done?" in the West Bank, what of he course. did in Gaza. And he said, absolutely. I think you're talking Weisglas, uh, but, uh, but I'm just guessing. Uh, did, you hear, did you hear that too? That that was his plan, I, was to I, continue I fl- building the... the I flew with him, with Dov Weisglas. I'm not saying you mentioned him. I, I do, okay? I flew with him, uh, went to Europe, so I sat next to him and I asked him the same question. He said, of course, why, when we pulled out of Gaza... Why Sharon insisted on also pulling from two uh, God-forsaken yeah, exactly. settlements to, to set to the stage, set the to stage, plant the seeds, plant the seeds, send the message? We're gonna go there as well. But Sharon got a coma and died, and uh, and Netanyahu, I think, is not really uh, ready to alienate his base by by doing any of this, and I think he in the back of his mind, because otherwise, 
you may ask Netanyahu or the right or anybody, so what's your solution? How are you going to keep Israel both Jewish and democratic while, while staying or even annexing the West Bank? So they don't have an answer. They don't. They have. It's like diabetes. We're going to manage it. This is the thing I've heard for years and years. It's not a problem. It's a condition. I'm against we managing. Manage. I'm, I'm, I'm against managing. We mow the lawn. I'm against managing. Uh, I, I'm for uh, being proactive. Uh, and I saw Rabin in action. Rabin, you know, when Rabin accepted Oslo, which which started with Berlin and then to Paris, etc. Yeah, there was a sense of action there. He, but he hated it, and he. Uh, and in uh, his last speech in the Knesset, he said it would be less than a state. Yes, but against reluctantly and Very against reluctantly. his against his own uh, uh, strong Instinct. instincts, he took the action and he explained why. It's so interesting, Uri, you know, because you've seen over the years Israeli leaders that have really, really paid the price and grudgingly had to do things they never thought they would do. And you start with Menachem Begin from the right, really swallowed hard to sign the, that deal with Sadat, you know? That, yes. And then you see Rabin. Bless him, bless him. Yeah, bless him. I, and I can't say the same thing about your friend Shimon Perez because it was easy for him. Uh, uh, and not easy, I put easy in quotes, but you see Rabin, same thing. And even Ehud Barak, who was, you know, a great military soldier, right. I think it was very difficult for him to make such a generous offer at Camp David and Camp David too in Taba and so forth. And uh, even Ehud About Omer, Camp David, I'm not so uh, sure. I, I think Barak went there hoping or planning to expose Arafat. So uh, I asked him that once. <laughs> I, I went to him and I said, you know, Mr. Barak, you put three words down and you risked your career. He said, what were those three words? He said, end of conflict. Yes. And because in a way, we knew they would never sign a deal that had those three words in it. Yes, yes. Because they can't turn, they, they don't have the guts uh, or the magnanimity. Their identity is based on the on, on the on, conflict. Continuing continue also the refugee problem, which, by the way, UNRWA uh, contributed a lot to this because it's only, I mean, look, there, there were tens of, almost hundreds of millions of refugees around the world. The last, around the world, and they all eventually settled somewhere. Right, well, and, except and, and for what the, do you tell your people? You've been telling them for 70 years that millions of you are going to come back to the real Palestine in Israel, and what do you tell them? We lied to you, so I think they've painted themselves into a corner. And I think, going back on this theme of really proactive Israeli leaders, and I think Sharon was the last great example of a really proactive leader, and I guess what you're saying I is- I think Olmert as well. And Olmert, Olmert correct. Olmert, Olmert. And, and we've missed that, I think, although- uh, in, in comes corruption. <laughs> I, hate right. to, I hate to bring this to the equation, but, uh, you know, Olmert was very close with yeah. probably getting a deal with Abu Mazen, and then the corruption uh, erupted, or he was indicted. So. Well, my theory is that uh, Abu Mazen would never have signed. It was too good for us. Uh, now, here we are today. Uh, is there a leader in Israel, do you think? I mean, the coalition right now, there's probably going to be elections in the next 6 to 12 months. The, the coalition is not one that can take proactive action. No. Uh, everybody is uh, waiting for something to happen. First of all, we, we, we really don't have... The, I hate to say it, because in, in science, in high-tech, in 
in culture. We have we have heroes. We have uh, people who are really uh, towering about everything and, and not in politics. In politics. No, yeah. because people stay away from politics. Good people. They don't whatever. Why do we need this? I mean, why do I need to be shamed on uh, on television or, or mocked in a uh, late night show? It's shows? also a function of an incredibly intractable conflict. I mean, I've studied it for so long, and it's really not one that's easy to solve. And it's kind of part of the tragic story of Israel, is that uh, the great victory, the miracle of '67, ended up the leading into almost a trap, almost a checkmate. Right. You know, it was da- like David Ben-Gurion, by the way, uh, the he founder. saw it right away. Uh, uh, he saw on it the right seventh away. day of, of the war, just mm-hmm. immediately, he says, we should give everything back except for the Golan because he says it's empty and Jerusalem. But he said the rest, give it back immediately. And you know, by the way, by the way, the Israeli government on June 19th passed a resolution saying if there's true peace I with remember. the Arabs, uh, we're going to give back. Uh, the territories won, mm-hmm. except Professor Eli Podet of Hebrew University just wrote a book about it, mentioning it. He said <laughs> it was not brought to the attention of the Arabs. It was given to somebody in Washington and probably found its way to the archives or something. Well, so missed opportunity. But uh, uh, along your thought, uh, one wonders if they would have accepted because in Khartoum in September, the three knows. The three knows. So it tells you that they were not ripe for for any of this. But David, talking about optimism, pessimism, where does it go? I was there when Sadat landed in Jerusalem. I was at the, on the tarmac, Ben Gurion Airport. My job was to take the his air crew and host them. And the minute we met, we hugged each other like we were brothers who who met after so many years. Why? Because we felt this history. Then I was on the South Lawn in the White House September 13, 1993, when the two arch enemies, Arafat and Rabin, shook hands. Never mind Rabin would have liked to be somewhere else at the time. And then uh, again in the White House, Hussein and Rabin. Mm-hmm. So I touched peace, and it's mm-hmm. possible. I know, I know, and you know, I think one of the one of the mistakes we make is we use the example of Camp David with Sadat and with Hussein to, and we connect it to the the West Bank. But it's like, you know, Camp David. Uh, Sadat and Hussein was like making peace with a neighbor in another city or in another neighborhood. Here you're talking about people in your living room. It's so much more complicated to make peace in this context. Complicated and challenging and calls for leadership. And uh, I, I believe that uh, circumstances eventually uh, call for leaders. Uh, the leader will rise. I mean, perhaps on both sides, on both sides. On both you sides. Know. Look, I know some Palestinians. They what? What they really want is a, is a better future for their children. It's true. I know, and uh, I've met them. I've been in Ramallah, and one of them told me, I've, I've repeated this, I think, ten times. He said, "You know, we're kind of afraid if you guys leave, because Hamas and ISIS are going to come in and chop our heads off." So they see this occupation as a kind of protection in a way. I think Yossi Klein Alivi's 
for me, our friend, our friend in common, says like staying in the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel. Leaving the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel. I've never heard a better summary, more pithy summary of the complexity and, and, and the I dilemma. Still, I still, uh, uh, you know, when you have to make choices, you don't, and you don't make choices between good and bad. You make choices between bad and worse. And if I'm confronted with this kind of choice, I would choose bad because otherwise the other choice is, is worse. And I, and I love that you do that because this has been the, the main theme of your writing uh, on, on this conflict. And it's, the, it's the, um, the great... Israel just amazes me all the time because it's got these huge problems, huge, that we can't even imagine. You know, living, knowing that there are 150,000 rockets that are trying to get rid of you and knowing that there's a neighbor out there who's genocidal, like Iran, and there's such a threat, and there's an intractable conflict, and yet every time I see Israel, I, I visit, I see this incredible love of life, Uri. How do you figure? That's the, that's... Uh, They're happier it, than us. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Israelis are annually polled about how happy you are. I know, they beat <laughs> the, the U.S., they beat France, they beat great countries, and... And By I, know way, you, I know you love opera, and you uh, go to Italy every summer, and yes. you listen to, like, great opera. And it's just, I'm always just, amazed just, at this I love just of life. Saw, I just saw a great Tosca at the Met in New York last week. So these are things that really keep which, you... Which opera is your favorite? I did see Carmen. Don Giovanni, ah, Don Giovanni, but Tosca is, is great. Uh, Do you watch opera with the words, with the translation? Because I found that was so helpful. I I, 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 I don't want to be immodest, but I. You I, just know I, all the words. No, already. no, no. I, I studied Italian too. Okay. Because to, and I read the libretto before, so you know the little things that make you happy in life. Yeah. But but they made you a big me, difference for me when I when they. <laughs> yeah, uh, David, you asked about how how we how we live with this kind of uh, anxieties and pressures, etc. And by the way, it. It only, I, I, I drove here, okay, uh, and, and it occurred to me the civilized way people drive in L.A. and this park. Compared to the <laughs> driving in, in Israel, it's like a war zone. <laughs> uh, uh, so Israelis take all their uh, uh, anxieties and pressures to, uh, on the street. Uh, on the street. Uh, I tell you why people, people, Israelis are, we Israelis are can-do people. We, we, we are not... You're thinking of yeah, solving we, problems. We, we, you know, it reminds me, in Thailand there was some robbery or something involved. Some Israelis were attacked, and two of them attacked the robbers. And all of us said to each other, it must be Israelis because you don't just stand and be robbed. You, you do something. Right. Uh, so... And you know where I get my optimism from my uh, grandchildren. Uh, my granddaughter Maya, she's 18. She's going to the army now. She wants to be a doctor. I, every time I look at her, I know I'm leaving her with so many problems, bigger problems that I inherited from my parents. But she's, these generations are so smart so creative, so they will come up with solutions, either technological or political, but 
I have big trust in them. So uh, also, if you ask what's a source of strength, family. Mm-hmm. You know, our family, every Saturday they come, they sit, every, everyone has their... You make a cholent? Eh, cholent. <laughs> uh, ch- my, my wife's cholent is, is, is famous. But, uh, you know, and they each... And, and, and then they start the, the discussions and the debates. You voted for this. You told me to vote for that. Or all kind of personal things. But there's so, such strong family connection. There's an intimacy that I feel. There's solidarity. In Israel. Solidarity still. The uh, language itself seems to lend itself to intimacy. You'll meet a total stranger and you'll act like you've known him for 20 years. Right. You'll argue with just anybody on the spot. You know, I just sat in the, in, the, in the subway in New York, and people don't look at each other because you're invading their, their space. space or something. So my daughter, when she was in uh, uh, high school, she used to wear those T-shirts, which are a bit... Yeah, uh, suggestive. Uh, yes. Yeah. So a woman would say, why do you have to dress like this? You know, <laughs> like... No, in Hebrew. In Hebrew, of course. Yeah. <laughs> why, 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 why? And, he, and she said it not... Uh, not in, in an in aggressive a way. In a motherly way, right. in, a, in a caring way. Or when my, my daughter was soldier and she went to Hatsurim Air Base, where, by, by the way, she was born, so it's closing a cycle, and then she served there. She went there, and they, the bus would stop at Masmia, which is a junction, and people would go, ah, the toilets, and uh, eat something or drink something. She ordered something, and then she found out she, she forgot her wallet uh, at oh. home. So she says to the vendor there, she says, no, you are my daughter. You take this shakshuka, and it. you take yeah. it. So it's, uh, and it's not only in time of uh, trouble. There is still a solidarity there. And I think, you know, I was speaking to my daughter this morning, uh, Tova, and we were talking about Israel because we're worried about all that stuff. There's such an obsession with security uh, in Israel among all the authorities that deal with security. And I think that's one of the reasons you see this incredible celebration of life because there's an inherent trust among the citizenship that they're being protected. I was there during the knife intifada uh, a year and a half ago, and all of America was up in arms because of Charlottesville, and they were freaking out, and they had one dead, and so we're all speaking about you know the danger and so forth, and here I am. They had like 40, 50, 60 terrorist attacks across Israel, the knife intifada. I'm sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv. There are thousands of people on the streets celebrating, right. and I'm thinking there's but, an innate uh, w- but, trust. But Yes, but you know, we have uh, this inbuilt uh, mechanism uh, that allows us or enables us to live with this kind of anxiety. Otherwise, you go crazy. I'm sure many Israelis are uh, traumatized. They don't even know Uh, until you go, like I go, you you mentioned opera. I go in the summer, I go to Verbier, which is in the Swiss Alps. And only there, after, and it takes three days to <laughs> get rid, yeah. Get rid of all the Israeli the anxiety. And suddenly you see that people can live <laughs> in a different way. So you realize what, in what a pressure cooker you live in. I, I, somebody, and it's good and bad because, yes. you know, it, a lot of these amazing discoveries 
and startup nation and so forth comes from Come that from electricity, that energy. Right, right. But but a friend asked me after Pittsburgh, uh, how how do Israeli live with this kind of thing on a on a regular basis? I said. You, uh, and can we American Jews adopt this kind of Israel uh, mentality? Or I said, don't, because you you won't be able to live with this. I and I told him the, how I met with friends at Sarona Market. This is in Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. a nice place. And we said we hugged each other. We sit down, and then casually we say, "By the way, this is the place where two guys from Hebron came and started shooting uh, people." And then we go on to order our uh, brunch or whatever. And then I look around, as I always do, even if I go to a cinema, uh, there's a problem, where do I take shelter and how I get out of it. Mm. And this comes from also from the Air Force because uh, my best friend was killed in a, he was shot down in a, in a, uh, by the Egyptians in the war of attrition. And uh, this was a cargo plane, and out of the seven crew members, only one uh, managed to bail out. And this was the one who, two months before, went on a specific uh, rescue Mm. course in the States. So I said, you know what? You need to take care of yourself. (laughs) So I always look, or if I'm sitting uh, beneath a... A, a, a roof that might, mm. you know, this is not normal, but I, I, I'm very it's happy a, with this. And I'm sure a lot of Israelis. A lot of Israelis uh, uh, don't take their existence for granted and therefore take care to uh, protect themselves, but they also manage to live normal life. And I think what the way, part of the way to do it is to, is, is, is again the family, the, the connection to your children, to your grandchildren. I think there's got to be some chutzpah there, which oh, is I'm not going to let my enemy uh, stop Out. me from going to a cafe tonight. You know what I mean? I think there's got to be some... You know, I, in 2014, I invited the 22 film critics to, uh, to cover the Jerusalem Film Festival. And then the war in Gaza started. So people start calling to... Cancel. I said, don't cancel me. I flew in the Air Force. I still know people. I know the people who operate Iron Dome, and I guarantee to you a personal Iron Dome on every rocket that will... They said, <laughs> oh, stop, stop. 20 came, okay? Took me two weeks of being on the phone. From around the world? Around the world. And... Um, uh, this was Friday afternoon. I put them on the terrace of the press club. Here's a glass of wine. Thanks for coming, blah, blah. The siren goes off. He says, where's the shelter? I said, no shelter. Did I promise you? I don't know. I said, Uri, please, where's the shelter? I said, stay here. Took out my iPhone, and I can show it to you. I wish it was a television show. People could have seen. And I just pointed it to the air, and in two seconds... There's the interception uh, of, of a rocket, one of the two tar- uh, targeting Jerusalem. And uh, it's if you want to see it, I'll show you. Yeah. So, so you uh, it's, a chutzpah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a chutzpah. And We're not going to let them win. No, 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 no way. Although this I got to tell you, in the second intifada, I would go there and I would see these empty streets. 
And I said, oh, my God, could this be that they're, you know, the enemy, the terrorists so, are starting so, to win? So, so you're talking about Palestinians. There was a Palestinian restaurant in the middle of Jerusalem, Minaret, uh, Lebanese restaurant, Lebanese cuisine, wonderful. Always packed. Start the second intifada, nobody goes. I said, I will go to my friend, Abu Salah, uh, to show solidarity because mm -hmm. he's coming to West Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's running a restaurant. He's good to us. He's good to everybody. He wants to support his family. He needs. So it was me, uh, Chief Justice Barak, and his wife came. Uh, some people came, and, uh, and uh, yes, people, uh, but Jerusalem or Jerusalemites are resilient. You know, okay, so they stay at home for a while, then the city comes back to life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and we're stronger than, uh, than what they try to do. Yeah, this is a good segue to the press club, because you just gave this great example. You really dodged a bullet, Roy, with that guy. So can you tell us about the Jerusalem Press Club, which is your main yeah. activity now? Well, uh, it started when I worked uh, with Rabin uh, during the Oslo days when we were really the darling of the media. You know, we had uh, hundreds of journalists based there. We were the peacemakers. You know, there were days when, the, when we had six heads of states coming to town, to, to the prime minister's office, to be part of this celebration uh, and with them the journalists so it occurred to me that if there's so much attention in, in, in the world media about Israel we should use it to our um, benefit and sometimes people complain about the media I always take a different approach I said let's negotiate let's let's network with them let's dialogue with them let's talk to them let's show them what Israel is about and life took me somewhere else, but after uh, six years ago, I founded the Jerusalem Press Club uh, in, a, in a, I think, in the best location, the most beautiful location, uh, near Meshkinot Shananim, the famous historic house overlooking the old city, the walls of the old city. The idea is to create a hub for the journalists based in Israel, where they can uh, work, network with the colleagues. And it's busy all day long? It's you busy. journalists from around the world? Uh, yes, not as many as before because uh, media outlets cut their overseas operations. Mm. And it's almost like a we work for exactly, journalists. Exactly, mm -hmm. and we run... And it gives you a chance to mingle with them. Yes, and and and, and see what they're uh, This is where I should to. go next time I'm there. Yes, please do. Uh, by the way, the journalists are dues paying members mm -hmm. uh, and we are members of the international association of press clubs i was also the president in 2014 and we do briefings guided tools etc then uh, these people are ma mainly interested in politics and conflict etc right. so but there are more to israel they're than, not interested uh, in the good news no, no, it's not that. It's, it's. By the way, you you should know because it's what the editors are interested in. Not, they can come up with some ideas, but the editors say what, you know. There was, I think, you were there when uh, Prime Minister Rabin, uh, sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu said to the Jewish press, "Did you know that the Israeli cow gives more milk than the Dutch cow?" Now that's 
great news because Dutch cows are, but I don't think it's going to make news in any paper, even in the Jewish journal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, you never know. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, but there's more to Israel than meet the eye uh, or or makes it to the front page. And therefore, I'm inviting... Like what, for example? Like a film that I mentioned. Israel is huge in film. As we speak, there's a a film festival here in L.A., right? Right. uh, not all the films are made by the Israel uh, Foreign Ministry, okay? But but they show how vibrant, how creative, how energetic the Israeli society. And you've seen journalists around the world be influenced by that. They've shown an. Interest. I'll give you an example. Uh, in 2014, when I invited the film critic, one of them was a chief film critic of the BBC, an arrogant guy goes with his mustache, with his silk uh, scarf, you know, looking uh, at Very us. Very distinguished. I said, I'm going to crack this guy. So at the end, after the festival, after meeting the filmmakers, after seeing the warmth that they are surrounded by film viewers, I asked him, Tom, would you say something to the, uh, to the camera? Because I do clips. Mm-hmm. Uh, every mission, I do. so he says, by all means. And he said, Israeli films made me emotionally attracted to Israel. Now, it's a good line. It's a very good line. And he said, I can't wait till I return. And the other guy, who was the chief film critic of The Guardian, not necessarily a champion of uh, Israel. Two years later, was asked by The Guardian. The Guardian ran a survey among 100 film critics in the world. Which is the best cinema house, in your opinion, in the world? And he picked the Jerusalem Cinematheque because he was there. And he said, you know, in, in Jerusalem, everybody will tell you a story about something. And he will tell you the Vadi next to the Cinematheque is Gehenom, is, is, is hell. But trust me, he writes in The Guardian. For film lover, it's a heaven. So, or, or I'll give you another example. I brought science, science journalists from all around the world. And I hooked up with the Academy of Sciences and Humanity and got all the Nobel Prize laureates, etc. Technion, Weizmann, Hebrew. Two years later, the German participant called me and says, I want to come with 25 of my colleagues. And they're going to pay their own way. I said, how did you do it? He says, I told them, until you came to the Technion on Friday, which is a day off in Israel, and Professor Chekhanover, the Nobel Prize laureate, will come from his home in his jeans and open his lab for you and explains to you one-on-one what he's doing, you're not entitled to be called science journalist. So to me, it's a, it's, it's a way of exposing people who have a lot of following. Uh, there's a guy here in L.A., Jorge Kam, who has a, a, a website called um, uh, academy.comics. Uh, look him up. He mm-hmm. has millions of followers. He came on a mission, and, and I said, what's in it for me? Because I brought him. And his producer from LA he said, I'll give you three clips, three clips on, on YouTube. So, what's his name again? Jorge Kam. Jorge Kam. 
C-A-N. C-A-N. And his website? Website, uh, Academy Comics, I Academy believe. Academy Comics. Well, we'll uh, he, he's, Google it. he's... That's interesting. He's, so he's into he's, comedy. He's into comedy. And you connected him with what comics in Israel? No, we no. We took him to the uh, to the Judean Desert to see the desert, you know, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Ah. And the guy says to him, you know, my three-year-old daughter can read what. Hmm. was written here 2,000 years ago. This is very moving. This is very touching. And millions of people see it and suddenly realize the connection we have to this land. It's not just some people right, came back. Right, right. Uh, you're showing context. Uh, we're showing, we, we, you know. we send back people who are uh, impressed by all the accomplishments, but mainly, if you ask me, what really touched them the more, more than anything else, it's the human touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my goal or dream is that whenever a journalist who visits us goes back home, before he or she pushes send, they should have a face of an Israeli they met bef- in front of them. And, and saying, you know, that's the strongest yeah. face of Israel is the yeah. human face. And, 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 and you can be critical of Israel, but, but be critical out of uh, a connection, out of link, out of caring for Israel. I, I mean, don't I, mind. I, I have a super simple theory that if you love life, you love peace. And I think deep down at heart, there's such a love of life, generally speaking, in Israel. This, uh, we are a life-affirming uh, society, definitely. You People, uh, you know, I just met in Jerusalem somebody who wasn't there for the last 25 years. And he was just uh, blown with, 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 uh, with, not only with the construction, you know, everything that physically changed, but... But he said, with all the troubles, with all the problems, with all what you've, <laughs> you guys have been through, and you keep this energy, this optimism, this... Uh, it's just crazy, this irony, to know that a couple of hours driving distance from you, 500,000 people got murdered in Syria, and tens of thousands of people got murdered in Yemen, and you live in the place that just... Which is celebrates is, death in a way. This, this, and by the way, is something that we uh, emphasize to all the groups that come. We take them to the borders, and we uh, both, and you know, took a couple of hours, and you're in the north, seeing the Syrian border, the uh, the before the Jordanian, then Syrian, then Lebanese border, then a couple of hours to the south, you see Gaza. And it's all so close. And what happens uh, beyond our borders is, as you said, is, is, is frightening. So I think this uh, exposing to people to the, the, the geopolitical uh, environment helps a lot. Do you also expose them to the relentless self-criticism that goes on in Israel? Oh, and, definitely. I know, mean, I'm just uh, I have to, I have to, frankly, some of my funders are not so happy because I, 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 when I take journalists or journalism students, you need journalism students. You need to treat them like journalists, and you can't do a fairy tale or Pollyanna, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you you need to show them everything with the problems. For example, took them to a uh, Arab 
woman, Israeli Arab woman, who's uh, who's uh, who's doing great social work, who's do who's fighting what is called honor killing. Right. You know, it's a terrible thing that happens. And she is standing up against all the opposition in her own society. But she's also very critical of the government of Israel. Now, would you uh, expose them to this? Yes, because you need to. So, so I found the asking, why do you have to do this? I, yeah, look, I can Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Full transparency. These are... Uh, so we are. Another example, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community, a lot of problems. They don't serve, they have uh, they, their women's uh, status, etc. So there's, we took them with a Haredi woman on a tour of Mea Sharem. Cost us a lot of trouble there because mm-hmm. people were not so sympathetic. And she, and this was a Berkeley group. Just think about bringing the most liberal in America <laughs> to, to the most illiberal part of Israel. And she starts by saying, Shalom, hello. I was married in an arranged marriage. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that, that's for the start, you know, talking to the Berkeley, uh, San Berkeley, Francisco. Berkeley feminist crowd. But then she says, you know, it worked for me, and I'm very glad that my husband can study the Torah because Torah is what kept us all generations. Now, whether even I, a secular Jew, when I listened to her, I became very uh, proud that we have such a woman. And then she goes on saying, you know what? But somebody has to support the family. So I studied, and I'm now a computer engineer. Mm. And I had to break a lot of taboos in my own uh, society uh, because I want him to study the Torah. You know, in their feedback, they wrote that she was one of the highlights of the tour. Mm. They can, they cannot. Uh, uh, it broke a stereotype. And and they were sh- they were so appreciative of of this woman who was so strong. By the way, kids started yelling about one of the girls from Berkeley, but she was she didn't have socks or something, mm-hmm. you know. So this woman yells back at him, "Who told you to look there?" You know, <laughs> she's. The, I'm not saying revolution will happen, but evolution definitely it's starting, happened. isn't it? And women are leading it. Women are leading it. Yeah, we hear we hear the news. This Same is one of the arms. biggest concerns we have here in America: is the power of the Haredim in Israel and the chief rabbinate and so forth. That's intolerance. Uh, that's that's that uh, that's terrible, and unfortunately, most Israelis uh, accept it. You know, we have a saying in Israel: we don't go to the synagogue, but the synagogue we don't go to is an Orthodox one. <laughs> so uh, okay. we don't care so much, and unfortunately, Israelis don't care enough, or they don't know what. Uh, the meaning is for American Jews. When the chief rabbi after Pittsburgh said that this this was not a synagogue, this was a, a actually place that's, that's contentious. We have an article by Gil Troy this week that challenges that, and he explains how he didn't really um, insult 
the conservative movement. I mean, I'll, I'll send you the article. It's too long for me to explain it now, but and it gets into the translation and so forth. So I'm sending all my readers now to jewishjournal.com. Look for Gil Troy's article on the I, subject. I'll read it with yeah, uh, with Chief great interest, but 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 oh, I, but make sure. Kotel. Take the Kotel. Thing oh yeah, there's me. been enormous amount of insults on the non-Orthodox Jew coming from the Haredi. I don't certainly don't want to dispute that. And and Israeli Israelis in general don't know those who never lived in the States. I lived here in the late three years, so I was exposed to the rich life. And you know, some people go to the synagogue uh, because of religious motives, some more from a cultural or, uh, or social. Uh, but the synagogue is a very uh, important. And uh, we have denominations. Echo. And you have reform, you have conservative, you have modern orthodox, you have ultra-orthodox, you have reconstructionist, yeah. is humanist, uh, and all they're these not denominations are not a big deal in Israel. They're because they're not in big numbers in Israel. You know, most Israelis, even the, the Masorti, you know, in Jerusalem, I live in Jerusalem, most of the uh, what we call national religious are not Haredi. You know, they serve in the army. They they pay taxes. They they are, they, they, they are Zionists, and among them there are a lot of mainly from uh, uh, America. Uh, no, America Orthodox Jews, but I'm talking about uh, Africa, uh, Maghreb. Mm. Um, they are called Masorti. I mean, they go to synagogue in the morning and then they go to watch uh, soccer in the afternoon. The afternoon, right? That's very uh, Sephardic. Yes, yes, and I think it's a great way to see. But most people are not aware of the way of life of American Jews, uh, and for them, uh, they think reform is not is like heretic or something. It's nonsense. Right. So. Uh, Uri, you've had really an amazing journey in Israel. You've seen it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've seen it from the military side, the science side, the secular side, the media side. Um, are you optimistic? Oh, I, I'm, uh, pessimism is not an option for me. I'm optimistic. I, I know my people. They are life-affirming people. And as I said, I look at my children and especially my grandchildren is uh, these are people will these people will come up with with creative solutions with creative ideas uh, I think that uh, we're not maybe capable of of thinking about right now and there's so much energy in Israel so much willpower so much life-affirming attitude that I'm I'm very optimistic. Uh, also, look, I inherited something from my parents. I mean, they left Europe to come and, and build something there. So it's not, and, and, and I, th I hope my children also get this sense of uh, we're holding something uh, very sacred in our, in our hands. And it's our, uh, there's a saying, uh, uh, you're not supposed to finish the work, but you're not allowed not to take part in the right. work. This is Talmudic mm -hmm. saying. Uh, so I think this sense of, um, uh, of, of, of some mission, of, of, uh, of, of purpose, of, uh, we're not just living there, we, we, we're doing something 
not only for ourselves, but for a, a bigger cause. It's interesting insight, like just living in Israel has sort of a built-in purpose that's hard and, to and, find and, in and, other And countries. by the way, this is the reason me and my wife chose to live in Jerusalem. Uh, because I served in the Air Force, so I had to commute every day. But we decided that raising children in, in Jerusalem is is worthwhile, and we were we were right. You know, my daughter w- was journalist many years, and she m- moved to Tel Aviv. Journalism, as you know, David, the most <laughs> cynical <laughs> job. Oh yeah. And still, everybody called her the Jerusalem Princess, mm-hmm. which means. We chose to live in a in a city which is challenging. Which you wake up in the morning and you have to fight against something. As we speak, this this is election for the mayor. You know the right. city. Who's going to win that? The city is divided. Right. But but it's a great city to live in because you feel you're not just living with all your respect in Tel Aviv, <laughs> which is a party city. The uh, sense of holiness. You know, I'm not religious, but on Friday afternoon, when you see people rushing to to be ready for Shabbat, it makes you emotional. So to me, it means a lot, and and I think there's a sense of that in Israel. You don't you don't just live in a country; you have a purpose. Well, you know, it's interesting because I used to see you at Mishkanot Shananim every summer, where Saul Bellow wrote his famous book on Jerusalem. And one of the lines I'll never forget from that book is he called the air in Jerusalem nourishing. It's a type of nourishment. Right. And, uh, I, I, and the light, the light, you know, when the light changes in the afternoon, uh, you know, I, I, I work next to Mexicano Chananim. Every morning I come to work, I feel uh, I'm, uh, I'm I feel excited. I feel uh, And you still do after all these years. I do because uh, look, I, I, I'm not the kind of evangelical guy who, who gets this Jerusalem syndrome because uh, but You're not Mashiach. Yeah, but you know to think that King David <laughs> walked there, uh, you know, it's it's something that makes you be proud. You know, Shia Gnon, the famous writer, was asked by an Italian journalist uh, after w- winning the Nobel Prize laureate for uh, for literature. He asked, uh, why do you live in Jerusalem? So he started giving her a, a long answer, and, and then he stopped at one point and said, look, I don't know if I convince you, but I don't even convince myself. But I'm lucky uh, and I'm grateful to live in a city where uh, the prophets walked, walked and, and, and preached to people. That uh, alone. That's, that's, uh, that's something that you don't need to be religious uh, to cherish. I often say, you know, when you have a big simcha in your house, a beautiful Shabbat, and on a Friday night, and there's such a great vibe, you know, it enters the walls. And when you come down and see the exact same living room on a Monday morning and no one's there, you still feel the simcha in the walls. Right. But it takes uh, life-affirming people to to see it. because <laughs> You can see the walls <laughs> in a different way. Well, on uh, that note of yeah. life-affirmation, uh, but before I let you go, I want to ask, Jerusalem Press Club, is there a website? 
www.jerusalempressclub.com. All right, JerusalemPressClub.com, uh, and all those video clips you mentioned. Everything it's all is there. there. Everything is there. We are. Uh, we we post everything. Uh, all the briefings we had, we 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 put them there. People can watch them. They are also on YouTube. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I I'd love people to be involved, to be to to call us, to to contact us, and uh, if we can share some of what we are doing, uh, we'd be happy to do so. Well, Uri, this was a great conversation, and thanks so thanks much for thank you so for much having for coming me. in, and let let us continue in this life affirming mode. Thank you so much, David.